And the young man who told him said, By chance, I happened to be on the Mount uh, Geboa. And there was Saul, leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and my, yet my life still lingers. So I stood behind him, beside him, and I killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. And David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, How is it that you're not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, and your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son, and has said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jehar. He says, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For the shield of the mighty have defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in this life, in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You, daughters of Israel, wept over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Father, we come to a passage that is 
heavy and filled with sorrow, that is in some ways confusing. So I pray that our hearts would be ready to receive from your word this morning. Let these words not not just be things heard, but things that penetrate into the deepest parts of who we are and become us, endure within us for your glory, for your honor, for your namesake, and for the good of your church. I ask in Christ's name, amen. Well, if you've been here for a few months, you know that we, in the last sermon series, followed Abraham's journey of faith as Abraham followed God into a land of promise. And now for the past eight weeks, we have been following David on his journey. But on his journey of faith, though it is a journey of a different kind, he isn't journeying towards a promised land. Instead, he's journeying to a promised throne. Today, in 2 Samuel chapter 1, we come to the final portion of that journey before the throne does come to him, the final step before his ascension. And as we look at this chapter, I hope that we see two things. I want us to see how David's response to Saul's death proves that he is a righteous king. And then secondly, David teaches us how to mourn, and it's a lesson we would do well to learn. So last week we left David in Ziklag, in the city of Ziklag, a Philistine city. He had just defeated the Amalekites in the far south. You can see the Amalekites region way down there in Ziklag, just to the north of it, but still in the south of Palestine. Up in the north, way up in the Mount of Gilboa, you see in the far north of that image, Israel's army was in defense of a massive Philistine offensive, and Saul was at the head of it. So while David was winning a resounding victory over the Amalekites in the south, Philistine forces were overwhelming Saul. And I want to read what happened on the Mount of Gilboa at the close of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 30, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Follow along with me if you'd like. Now when David and his men came, sorry, (laughs) we're looking at chapter 31. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell, slain on the Mount Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchisua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul. And the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul died, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died. And his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. 
It couldn't have gone any worse. After Jonathan lay dead on the battlefield and to save himself now from a shameful and agonizing death, Saul throws himself on his sword and he commits suicide. Rather die by his own hand than by these uncircumcised. Around him, the bodies of countless young men litter the soft slopes of Mount Gilboa, and the rest of the army is routed and runs away. And the numerous unnamed cities once belonging to the northern tribes of Israel are now under Philistine occupation, Israel's most bitter enemy. The Philistines have won this resounding, complete, total victory in the north of Israel. So 1 Samuel closes with that visceral desperation, the darkness, the death of Saul marks the end of an era. 1 Samuel closes in a very, very dark place. And so when you turn to 2 Samuel, as we do today, it is the dawning of a new era. And yet chapter 1 of 2 Samuel is a response to chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. It's a response of David as he responds to Saul's death. And David is the sole entire focus of 2 Samuel, unlike 1 Samuel where he came in about halfway through. Look at verse 1 again of 2 Samuel 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. So, though 2 Samuel is opening with these words of, of death, announcing the death of Saul, David at this point has no knowledge that Saul has been killed. That news hasn't reached him yet. He was in Israel's deep south. He, he was just returning from defeating the Amalekites. And it's no coincidence that David was all the way in the south, far removed from Saul's death. If you remember from last week, David had joined the Philistine muster in, in Aphek. Can we put that map back up there, John? So Phil, uh, David was with the Philistines in the city of Aphek that you see there. And he was, it seemed like he was ready to join the Philistines and go to war against Saul. We don't know if he really was going to, but it appears that way. But because he was an Israelite, because he was deeply loyal to the God of the Israelites, the Philistines were suspicious of him, and they rejected him. They didn't want him going up to battle with them, thinking that David and his men might betray them all. So they reject David. And David marches three days back down to Ziklag, only to find it destroyed, and all of their families taken. And then this drives David even further south into Amalekite territories to defeat the Amalekites and rescue those families, his two wives included. I rehearsed that because... God is orchestrating those events. God is he's using these events to get David as far away as possible from Saul's death. He wants there to be no anointed rejecting the throne by blood rising. And now no one in Israel can claim that David had taken the throne by blood or by force. No, he was all the way in the south. He had nothing, nothing to do with Saul's death. So God is protecting David's royal ascension by separating David from Saul. Now look at verses 2 through 4. On the third day, 
Behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell on the ground and paid homage. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people had fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. This man is looking rather bedraggled, clothes torn up and dirt on his head, but that's not the look of somebody who's been fighting in battle. This is the look of somebody who's been mourning. He's clothed like a mourner, and David and his men would have instantly recognized that. And they too will soon adopt the same look. This man, this stranger, he bows himself before David, which is what you would do when you come before a king. And so this man knows who David is, and he's come to seek this, this man who he knew was rising to the throne, what, a tra- what trajectory David was on. Now remember, like I said, David was in Aphek with the Philistines, preparing for war against Israel, and so he's very aware that this massive battle had taken place somewhere in the north. But the latest news that David possesses is now more than a week old, maybe two weeks old. Isn't that different from our day? We can get almost instantaneous reports on wars happening across the planet. David had had no news. And so he must feel a sense of of relief and anxiety. Hearing that this man had come from the very battle, I'm sure he's hungry to hear news from. He's, he feels relief, I'm sure, because now he can get updates. Now he can finally hear what's, what's going on. And I imagine it's been burning in his mind what's happened. But I'm sure he feels anxiety for two reasons. This man is dressed like a mourner, and he said that he had to escape foreboding things. I think you can hear the desperation in David's voice when he asks the question, how did it go? Tell me. Israel had fled, and many are slain, and Saul and Jonathan are dead. He couldn't have received more devastating news than that. I imagine heavy, heavy dread In David's next question, which we see in verse 5. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? The dread in that question. And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on a spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me, and he called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord Did you notice that the Amalekite story doesn't line up at all with what we read at the end of 1 Samuel? 
They seem to be total contradictions. This, this Amalekite claims to have mercy killed Saul rather than Saul killing himself. And then the text does nothing to help us resolve that contradiction, apparent contradiction. We're just left with it. Just, it hangs over the, the Scripture. There is a reason for that, though. I'll get to it later. A very important reason that there is no effort in resolving the contradiction in the Scripture. But when you do closely inspect 2 Samuel chapter 1, it's not too, too difficult to resolve the apparent contradiction. It sort of melts away, and then it helps us to understand why David seemingly so mercilessly kills the Amalekite. The details of verse 10 is where your suspicions should rise. Think about it. If you stumbled across a person, a body, let alone a king, and you killed, or stumbled across this person mortally wounded, and then you mercy killed them, would the next thought be to strip the body? I think that's the move of somebody who is cold and calculated and has other motivations. This guy knows that the crown and the armlet are symbols of royal legitimacy. And so he he takes these items and he unhesitatingly runs to David. First thing he does, grabs these things, runs to David. You can just see the self-interest dripping off of the scenario. As Walter Brueggemann so insightfully writes, The killer messenger imagines he is single-handedly making a king, a new king, and giving him legitimacy through the accoutrements of royalty. Did all this happen accidentally, or is this self-serving, or is this a self-serving scavenger? We are not told. Surely those who stood in David's presence watched and waited to see how the king would respond. It's just a suspicious story that this Amalekite is spinning. Is he lying about killing Saul? It seems very convenient. And did he just happen to come across the king and, and then his body and strip it? Now he's seeking some praise and some position from David? I think he's looking to get in with David. It takes a discerning mind to penetrate through the man's words and see his motivations, and it is a mind that David has. But for David, all he knows is the man's story. All he has is to take this guy at his word. He has no idea that Saul may have died in another manner. So it's a lot less clear for him than it is for us. But before David continues his investigation and asks another question, a question, a final question that will expose everything, before he asks that question, he is unable to restrain his emotions any longer. Look at verse 11. Then David took hold of his clothes and he tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. In a sense, that should boggle our minds. Like, shouldn't David, couldn't David have rejoiced? Saul hunted. And hated him. And now all of that is over. 
He doesn't have to fear that any longer. He's going to be driven out anymore. And David is, after all, God's anointed. The throne is his. And now, now it's his. he can go and take it. He can go sit on that throne. But David's response is one that I think the Amalekite could never have imagined. David is overcome with sorrow, with grief, with pain, with horror at this news. And David mourns the north, lost to the Philistines. And David mourns the loss of the slain, so many of Israel's precious sons. And David mourns his closest friend, taken too soon, so beloved. And David, most surprisingly of all, David mourns the death of Saul. Even if he hated and hunted David, he was still the Lord's anointed. He was still the hope of Israel. For a final time, and in spite of everything, in his sorrow, David shows how loyal he was to Saul, and it should stun you. David responds to Saul's death just like you would want a righteous king to respond or someone to be king. We'll soon see in poetic form that David mourns for all of Israel. He sort of stands as this figurehead, mourning for all the people. It seems so natural for him, even if it is sorrow. But this outburst of sorrow and grief does not bode well for the Amalekite. Verse 13, David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. And David said to him, how is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, or to his body, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. When David asks here, where do you come from? He's not asking about his origins. The Amalekite has already said he's an Amalekite. So that's not news he's seeking any longer. Rather, David is trying to determine how connected this man is to covenant with Yahweh, to the covenant people. And based on the man's answer, that's exactly how he understood the question. He's the son of a sojourner. Now that has significant covenant implications. And both David and the Amalekite know that sojourners were supposed to be treated as well as any Israelite. They were supposed to be loved in the land. This was a command of Yahweh. We actually read part of this, ver- or part of this passage last week. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land... You shall not do to him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So this Amalekite sojourner was to be loved by the people of Israel, embraced, brought into the community. But... If they were brought into that community, if they decided to live in community with Israel, that means that they were also 
under covenant law. From Leviticus 24. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done it, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. You see no exceptions for assisted suicide in that passage. Under covenant law, whoever kills shall be put to death, whatever the intentions were of that killer. A brief parenthesis, Mosaic law does make exception for accidental death and just warfare. But it is God who gives life and it is God who takes life. And any person intentionally taking a life earns death. And David knows no different than what this Amalekite is telling him. This Amalekite is a self-proclaimed murderer. Yeah, he comes from a family of sojourners. And he is, he is seemingly eager to admit that he's killed Saul. And whether he has or not, it's almost irrelevant at this point because it reveals his Amalekite heart, right? That he is... He may be physically uncircumcised, but surely his heart is uncircumcised. He is one of the unclean outsiders from Israel, a Gentile. And David has just come from defeating the Amalekites. Just. So in the strictest sense of the law, the mercy-killing Amalekite deserves death. anointed. How much more does he deserve death for any action against Yahweh's anointed is an action against Yahweh. And so he is killed. But there is another layer. There's always another layer in the Bible. And I love that about the Bible. Remember last week from that sermon, one of the primary reasons that God had rejected Saul from being king was that Saul had rebelled against God and he had refused to kill the Amalekites, to eliminate the Amalekites. And it became a curse to him. Now, here is an Amalekite, boldly claiming to have killed Saul and then certainly stripping his body. So I think why the text is silent about this apparent contradiction between 1 Samuel 31 and 2 Samuel 1 is because that in the end, it looks like Saul was thrust to his death both by the Philistines and the Amalekites, the two most bitter enemies of Israel, the two enemies that God had called the king to defeat, Saul to defeat, and Saul didn't do it. He refused to do it, and he failed to do it. And so they killed him, so it would seem. Remember when Saul was chasing David in the wilderness, hunting David, looking to kill David. Do you remember what pulled him away from that? The Philistines were invading in the north. Do you think they would have invaded if Saul was doing what he should have been doing and didn't have the whole military down in the south? 
So God uses the Philistines and in a symbolic sense the Amalekites to end Saul. To be his curse to the bitter end. But David is a king of another sort. He's already defeated the Amalekites in the south and quite definitively he's just executed this slimy Amalekite messenger and soon enough David will deal with the Philistine occupation in the north. But before that happens, before he leads Israel to war, before there is a royal reshuffling, the people of Israel need a moment. They just need a moment to stop, to pause. They need a moment to express their grief. Something that this heir to the throne knows profoundly, and he needs it himself. Verse 17, And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said, It should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. So here David begins this public and formal lament. It actually follows a traditional funeral song, similar to what we find in the book of Lamentations. So this poem that is penned by David, it's overflowing with profound hurt and precious loss, and it is meant to give voice to Israel so that Israel has a a moment to remember and to release that which was so treasured. I think we can learn from this, church, from this tradition, and that there's even a thing of a formal lament among the people. I know that as a church, we know sorrow, particularly in the last year, it seems. Death sweeps away those that we love, and it steals from us our hopes, and and it's so painfully good to lament together, to linger a moment with one another with those tears. It's good. We should never try to rush one another past this pain and somehow try to force someone into comfort. No, let us be unashamed of our grief like David is. Let us be unashamed of our grief. For it is true that death is this fearsome foe and its separation that it brings. It is to be despised. We are to hate death and what it does to us and what it does to our loved ones. So let's embrace that grief. David is so unashamed of his sorrow that he, he writes a poem And he puts it to song, which he so often did with his internal self. I love this man, David, a warrior, a king, a poet. And here he writes for Judah, he writes for Israel, he writes for us today, though he doesn't know it. Look at what he starts to write. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. (laughs) When we are grieved by loss, it becomes a lot easier to overlook a person's faults, doesn't it? To romanticize, to speak in hyperbole, For example, you might say, 
they would light up a room whenever they entered it. But that's a hyperbolic statement. Did they really have that effect every time they entered a room on people? David's doing the same sort of thing in this lament. Saul's failings seem to have melted away, and now he, he speaks of Saul as mighty. He calls Saul Israel's glory. Saul! It's an amazing proclamation. And of course, Jonathan is wrapped into that. But though David may be romanticizing Saul's life, he's, he's capturing what's true in so many Israelite minds. Saul's their king. Saul was their glory. He was, the, he was to be the embodiment of all that was good and courageous and mighty in the land. The Saul, the king. The first king. And the hopes of the people were tied up in him. The king was supposed to deliver them from, from the Philistine threat. The king was, was supposed to bring peace and prosperity and rest. All these things tied up in the king. But now the violence of battle has slain the glory of Israel. And the hopes of a nation lay dead next to him on the battlefield. The end of verse 19 is the refrain of this lament. How the mighty have fallen. It's repeated two other times throughout the lament. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offering. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. A soldier would rub or anoint his leather shield before battle because it would keep it soft and supple and help to repel objects. It wouldn't become brittle like when it would dry out. But the shield of a king, of this king, will be anointed no more. And David calls down a curse on Mount Gilboa, the place of Saul's last stand, as if the mountain were somehow accountable for Saul's death. And see how David lifts Saul and Jonathan in their death. He just lavishes these praises upon him. It's almost like he's, he wishes he could raise them from the dead by elevating their memory. Surely both were fierce warriors, Saul with his sword and Jonathan with his bow, faster than eagles, stronger than lions, fearsome foes that now lay in repose. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxurious and scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen! In the midst of the battle, David remembers Saul in better days. Before the madness, before his descent into darkness, he remembers a time when, when Saul was met with victory in battle, when, when, when the plunder of battle brought luxuries to the daughters of Israel, surely though it's hyper, hyperbolic. Nonetheless, they, the daughters of Israel, are to weep for the loss of their king. 
In contrast to the Philistines who David wanted to silence their celebrations, back in verse 20, Israel, weep. Weep for your king. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. Here at the end of the lament, David's attention turns wholly to Jonathan, where he feels personally the greatest sense of loss. Jonathan was not blood, but he was a brother. And when David writes, your love surpassed the love of women, we should not see any hint of homoeroticism in that. Jonathan's love for David was deeply loyal and total, with total political commitment and covenant-bound and self-sacrificing and self-effacing. I mean, it, was, it was remarkable love for one another. Unique brotherly love, and David never found anything even to come close to it in the love of women. And we're going to see in coming weeks that David's romantic relationships were fraught with problems. But his friendship with Jonathan was pure, was good, strong. Endured great suffering together. No one in all of David's life was ever so aligned to David's heart as was Jonathan. So you can, you can hear the pain and the sadness spilling from those words. I am distressed for you, Jonathan, my brother. How the mighty have fallen. Second Samuel opens with this incredible, emotionally complex chapter, and there's just a, a swirl of emotions in this chapter. Saul, who had been David's relentless enemy, is dead, and his death must come with some sense of relief for David. But Saul's death also opens the door for promise to become reality for the throne to finally come to David. By God's choosing, David is the rightful heir, and it is time to reign. And so David's heart must be struck with the gravity of that, that he will soon be king, and the hopefulness that comes with the dawning of a new era. And yet, these developments of promise are cast in darkness by the death of what was lovely and beautiful, and precious. Greatness and glory overwhelmed by anguish, and it's so real to the human experience, to our experience. So relatable for us these very many millennia later. I look up from this pulpit, and I see your faces that have had your loved ones taken by death. With them went hopes and promise of the future. 
I can hardly remember my mother. And your sons and your daughters and your parents are gone. And I wonder if you struggle with remembering them. Don't be ashamed of the tears. Let us not think that we can comfort somebody by trying to speed mourners through grief. Distress should grip us. Distress should grip us when those we love with all our might fall. For how the mighty have fallen. There's this relatively new book called Seasons of Sorrow by Tim Challies. I'm going to put two copies in the book nook. For those who are grieving, for those that want to be a help to somebody who is grieving, I think this book is a treasure. You should take the time to read it. And since there are only two copies in the book nook, maybe buy a copy. Read it yourself. In this sermon series, I keep ringing the bell. But David prefigures Jesus. And you might wonder here in this passage, how? But remember Jesus in Gethsemane. And all the emotional complexity that he bore under the shadow of the cross, hours away from unimaginable agony. And Jesus was struck with grief. It says he was weeping so much. He was sweating, sweating droplets of blood. Now, he was bearing a grief that was a grief of a different kind. The sins of the elect were about to be placed upon his shoulder. The sins of so many. And for that, the wrath of the Father would be unleashed upon him. And separate first time in all eternity, a separation between father and son, an agony, a terror we can hardly imagine. Jesus would be the mighty to fall. And yet, as Hebrews 12:2 tells us, Jesus went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. Glory lay on the other side of death. And he rejoiced in that moment of agony, knowing that there would be a redemption of a sinful people, that he would receive resounding praise and glory and honor and blessing from his heavenly Father, and that there would be a throne, a throne that is forever his, a throne that he sits upon today. But in that garden, as Jesus considered the cup he must drink, he was in agony, and he was absolutely unashamed of his sorrow of his grief. He wanted his disciples to see it. He brought them to see it. He wanted them to write about it so we could see it, so we could know it. And it was precisely because he drank that cup that he did go to that cross, that he did face God's wrath on our behalf, precisely because of that, that the mighty need not fall. For the death of Jesus swallowed For for Jesus' death swallowed death. He defeated a foe far greater than Amalekites and Philistines. He defeats death through his resurrected life, his eternal life, which is now available to us by faith if we come to him. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And death no longer has the final say. Its teeth have been cut. For the mighty may fall, but yet shall they live. Who are the mighty among men? But those who come to God and say, I am weak. I am pitiable and poor and desperate and sinful and broken and frail. I have nothing. But God loves the contrite in spirit. And in our weakness... He makes us strong. He makes us mighty. By the grace and life of Christ, He makes us mighty. And the mighty will be forever unfailing, unfading, alive. So yes, there is a time for mourning. And we embrace that flood of sorrow just as David does here. But there is there is coming a time to rejoice. Rejoice that those who die in Christ live. Rejoice that when death comes to you, when death comes to you, we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, we are to grieve together and we are to rejoice together. Let's embrace all these parts of us together. We sing and we, and we weep. We remember the loss and we remember the promise together. And when the time of mourning is satisfied, we prepare for action. Because there is an occupied country. And we are to take it. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We must take back what the enemy has stolen. And we're going to see David do this in the coming chapters. How fitting it is, brothers and sisters, for David, for Jesus, for us, that before crowns, there must be weeping. We weep together. We rejoice together. Father, you know us. You see all of the turmoil and confusion in our hearts. How amazing it is that you give us space to express these things. You make a way. You give us voice for it. With your word. How awesome. I pray that as we walk through this life together and we face death, we face 
Satan's attacks and his wiles and we face the sins in our life, that we would bear one another's burdens, that we would be one, as you and the Father are one, that we would be one. Help us to love one another and treasure each other. Help us remember what was so precious now lost and help us remember such precious promises that come to us in Christ. Thank you for your promises. Our joy set before us. I praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.